It can be such an interesting contrast, these last hours and days of our retreat, where we sense the momentum of the practice on the one hand, and then on the other hand, noticing the inevitable increase in mental activity and maybe a more stormy energy just because of the proximity of the closing. And they don't actually contradict, they don't have to contradict each other. That momentum of balance, trusting, recognizing awareness. And then on the other hand, just the wildness of the mental activity, the highs and lows, the twists and turns of thought and emotion. And this can teach us a lot about equanimity. I just want to share a few reflections. And I know full well that just bringing up equanimity can be triggering in the sense of You know, we create some idea that we then use to judge our practice. Like one of the statements in the Dhammapada, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind. You know, and just see what that does when that lands. Like, okay, I'm going to, you know, some of us immediately sit up a little bit more straight and that sort of adolescent, you can't make me blink or whatever. Maybe that's not adolescent, maybe middle school. I'm not gonna flinch. I'm so far above all that reactivity. So there is this sort of false equanimity or this pretend trying to look equanimous. I think it was Michelle McDonald, uh, one of the three-month teachers back when I was able to do some three-month retreats in the late 90s. And I think she said something like, one of the great things about a long retreat is that we give up some of our false equanimity. You know, trying to... that you know, cultivate that Buddhist affect of being unflappable or something, (laughs) which hopefully you get a sense that it kind of (laughs) stinks. You know, nobody wants to be around us when we're that kind of practitioner who's trying to look like they're equanimous. So it's good to just take some time and reflect on like what is meant by this beautiful, radiant 
deep balance. And sometimes we have a sense of that immovable, immovable balance, that solidity because of concentration. We're having a so-called good set. The mind is really settled and stable and there's that inner pleasure of that stability. And we, we get a sense of the immunity the heart has to all the other sense experiences because it feels so good in its seclusion and in its stability. And on a more ordinary level, like when everything is just right, we have a kind of equanimity because things are the way I like them to be. People are treating me the way I want to be treated. My car doesn't need to be repaired. My computer is working. I'm not sick. And there can be some balance because the conditions are really nice. And then much more so when we have that stability, that inner pleasure of a settled, calm, clear mind. And we can learn a lot from those more ordinary or the meditative equanimity of seclusion. We can learn a lot. For one, we learn non-reactivity is a real possibility because we see it. And then it, it naturally evokes this wholesome desire. Well, can I be balanced, unshakable, no matter the conditions? Or in a way that's not dependent on conditions? And then we're getting closer to the deeper pointing of this this term, upekka, upekka, equanimity, equipoise, this balance. In In the deepest sense, it's a balance that comes from deep wisdom. Like uh, one way to, a question to ask herself, how does this heart relate to the ordinary choices, the ordinary twists and turns of life from the deepest wisdom? Because, you know, normally there's attachment, there's tightness, concern, there's fear, wanting to do it right as we navigate the twists and turns. There's a couple of teachings that um, are just really provocative for me. One is from Ajahn Suwat was one of Ajahn Tanisaro's teachers in the Thai forest tradition. And he had just a, a little image. Mountains aren't heavy unless you try to lift them. Or mountains are only heavy 
if you try to lift them. Just reflect on that. Mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them and how that relates to equanimity. And that's the the key is like to where there is that deepening of wisdom to really notice how it affects our relational world. And that's a really important barometer. And often equanimity is used as a kind of barometer for the deepening of practice. How has the deepening of understanding coming out of our practice affected our relational world? How we relate to this, to that, to people, to objects, to the ups and to the downs. More balance, more equanimity, Or does the heart feel more oppressed and pushed around by what comes and goes in our experience? Mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. Maybe we could say, you know, experience, relating to experience is only heavy, oppressive, if we're trying to feed on experience, trying to get something. I mentioned this in a teaching at the Force Refuge when I was teaching not too long ago, and a former staff person here who was on retreat at the time left me a note with a corollary to this, mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them, that a friend evidently had given to him, and it's, it goes like this, it's only confusing if you think it should make sense. <laughs> and I think actually, I mean, it's funny, but it, I think it has to do with equanimity. It's only confusing if you think it should make sense. Because part of what throws my heart off balance, I'm guessing that it's similar to others, is this, The mind really needs meaning. And, uh, but when the heart mind learns that it's just like this, like in a moment of confusion, a moment of not knowing, or a moment of ambiguity. I mean, I notice that much more now, moments of ambiguity followed by moments of being okay with ambiguity. In the past, I wouldn't even notice the moments of ambiguity until I, the mind was struggling to cling to some thought or an opinion that dispelled the ambiguity. And then maybe if I was lucky, I would notice the tension of like imposing my idea on the moment. But now I, I'm, there's almost a little bit of uh, dharma, curiosity, even enthusiasm, where whether it's just like reading something in the news or some issue at the retreat center or city center that I help oversee in Minneapolis and uh, western Wisconsin, where, you know, there's always these issues that there's no perfect clarity, like we're dealing 
with the whole issue of COVID and, you know, masks and vaccine mandates and doubling up people in rooms or not. And, you know, all these sort of or registration policies and there's no right or wrong answer to any of this stuff. It's all endless, endlessly ambiguous about what's the right thing to do. And yet choices have to be made. Always they seem imperfect, but still you got to make a choice. You got to have a policy and on and on. And, uh, yeah, I just noticed, I, I, I'm hoping that it's related to just the deepening of practice, but like not expecting things to not be ambiguous, not expecting things to be clear, and not seeing that as a problem. And a lot of times, you know, we think that the problem is that life isn't certain or life isn't governable, or life doesn't make sense. But actually the real problem is that we think life should be certain, or should be governable, or should make sense. It's not, it's not a problem the way it is. The cause for suffering is that we think it should be some other way than the way it is. And that may you know, seem, well, so what? But that we can actually do something about, right? That's just that shift in understanding. One of the images that's used in the suttas and the discourses, it's a little bit of a earthy simile, but Buddha describes a very dexterous butcher, you know, really highly skilled, who could remove the meat from the bones and then the dog that lived with the butcher, you know, would he tossed the bones down and the dog would be excited at least the first few times because bones and probably the little blood smeared on the bones, but absolutely no meat because it was a really skilled butcher. So the dog would go to work and not find any nutriment whatsoever on the bones. Now, I don't know how perfect the simile is because I know there's bone marrow, but you get the idea that the, the, the sutta goes or the discourse goes on to say, you know, the, the dog finds no satisfaction and eventually, this is just a rough paraphrase, realizes there's nothing here for me. There's nothing here for me. And we talked just briefly earlier in the retreat, maybe I mentioned it, and I know that the four of us talked about it uh, back in the staff dining room, just the, the unavoidable presence of grieving that arises from time to time in our practice. You know, we're grieving in bits and pieces. We grieve the wrong idea that experience, my life of experience is here the purpose of experience is here to satisfy me, to make me happy. And as we start to pay attention in this balanced way, cultivating the stability of present moment awareness, seeing things as they are, it dawns the mind slowly, quickly, in different ways, that that doesn't line up with reality. 
that the world of experience isn't here in any way to give us satisfaction. And you know, when we say it out loud, it makes sense like, well, that's kind of presumptuous to think that reality was somehow designed to provide satisfaction for me. Right? But it it really, like this is what wisdom, the deepening of wisdom, it shifts how the heart, the sensitive heart, is in relationship, relates to experience, to each other, to the highs, to the lows, from one of a person trying to feed in order to be nourished, to be saved, to be satisfied, to be safe, to sensitivity, you know, knowing, knowing that it's like this. And it doesn't mean we don't eat the food that's served or appreciate the warmth of the sunshine or put a sweater on when there isn't the warmth warmth of the sunshine. It just means we don't have that wrong idea. (laughs) I like telling this story. Maybe some of you have heard it. But uh, every five years or so, I teach an eight-week class on uh, wholesome relationships. And one article I'd like to give everyone to read is, I think the writer's name is Susan Pivar. And uh, I believe she practices in the Shambhala tradition. And this is an article I found a long time ago, a couple decades ago, probably now, maybe in Tricycle or one of the Buddhist journals. And she tells a story of being on a retreat. It was like the opening night, and she's just chatting at dinner when you could still talk. And and, uh, somebody she hadn't known before, an older man, And he was, you know, how in these settings you can have an intimate conversation very quickly with someone. And so he was sharing about having been dating somebody and now they're thinking about moving in together and this person's a little younger than him and just not sure what to do. And so he asked this new friend of his, you know, who he just met, do you think it can work? And this answer she gave surprised even her. And I just think it's a brilliant answer. (laughs) She said, of course it can work, as long as you don't think it's going to make you happy. (laughs) Isn't that a good answer? (laughs) And I think this has a lot to do with equanimity too. It's like, it, because a lot of times this is that, point I made at the beginning that we think we think we know what it is and we're trying to fit that mental image like okay I'm going to get involved in a relationship but uh, you know I'm, I'm going to make it look a particular way <laughs> actually as I'm saying this I hadn't thought about this this is a lot like the first years of my spouse and I because <laughs> I was sort of a hardcore but not very wise practitioner at the time. This is like a little bit more than 30 years ago when we first started living together. And uh, I I remember saying to Wynne, who's a Dharma teacher at our center and the co-founder of Common Ground and my partner, um, you know, I'm I'm okay about getting married, but uh, I don't really know what love is (laughs) or something like that. (laughs) 
I don't really get it. Actually, I'm so happy she could just kind of roll with it. (laughs) Maybe she rolled her eyes, but not when I was looking. Because we have this wrong idea. I think I had, to some degree, at least a little bit of a wrong idea, like being in a real relationship and really feeling stuff was somehow not the direction of the practice. And... I know there's some truth to that, but I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that too, about exposure. And uh, so I think the deeper understanding, deeper experience of equanimity is to um, just to be this uh, sensitivity that we've been cultivating, you know, and we'll be heading home and not too long, and even now, there's just so much moving. We feel so much in moments, at least. And it's always interesting, like, well, it's just a strong feeling, an intense feeling being known. And, uh, you know, what's, there can be this idea that, you know, if only, I mean, I see this coming up, I mentioned it earlier in the retreat, like, if only I could get myself someplace where these emails didn't cause strong feelings or this news didn't cause strong feelings, like some perfectly secluded place where I wouldn't have strong experiences that I would have to then practice with. You see, it, it would just get ourselves in a more narrow, tight space where you know I can't be around these kind of people and I can't be around these kind of climates, and I can't be around. I can't wear clothes. It used to be I needed to have clothes that were natural fibers, and now I realize that the clothes that don't have natural fibers, you don't have to iron. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like we just get ourselves in these smaller, tighter spaces about like what is acceptable, and uh, that's not equanimity. That's its own kind of hell realm, being really sensitive. And there's a kind of discriminating wisdom there, like there maybe is a difference between, you know, clothes made out of this fiber versus clothes made out of that fiber or organically grown vegetables versus not organically grown vegetables. You know, I'm I'm not saying that these things don't have merit or value or we're not going to discriminate but they're not a cause for happiness, real spiritual happiness. And any dependence on conditions is the cause for suffering. And you don't have to believe me because we can observe our own experience and notice when the things we're dependent on don't manifest what that's like. We suffer. It's not the way I wanted it shouldn't be this way. And then we can remember that point, you know, that suffering comes about not because things are the way that they are or they're uncertain, unreliable, unpleasant. The suffering is really this wrong idea that it shouldn't be this way. 
And just think, you know, if we could all remember all the times there was this very vivid, clear thought in our mind, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And, and there was, in those moments, often such a strong certainty. Like, no, 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 this is... But where does that certainty come from? It's just that unpleasantness of the Vedana, of the feeling tone. It's like, it's interesting how unpleasantness, whether it's the unpleasantness of insecurity or the unpleasantness of humiliation or the unpleasantness of having a cold or the unpleasantness of being cold. And it's not that it's not something, but it's just interesting how it it gets interpreted as a personal affront as opposed to it's like this now. And if there's something we can do without causing harm, we do it, put a sweater on. Or, and if there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can do in that moment. But does it have to be a cause for suffering? That's the interesting question to directly be interested in. And I'll just end uh, with that point around feeling tone. You know, when we're trusting awareness, recognizing awareness, part of what that stability of awareness reveals is that we're always feeling stuff, pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality. And not only are we feeling aware of the feeling tones, we're aware of the reactions that arise because of what we're feeling, the pleasantness of what we're feeling, the unpleasantness. We have a thought about leaving tomorrow, and there's a feeling tone there. And it might be mixed. It might be, in one moment, really pleasant, in the next moment, really unpleasant experience of anxiety, maybe some neutral feelings when you're imagining certain aspects that aren't, aren't charged. And, uh, but the, when, we're, you know, when we're cultivating that stability of awareness around feeling tone, just that this is a good place to investigate that balance. Like what is the knowing of pleasantness? What is the knowing of unpleasantness? I mentioned this in a, to somebody during the retreat that one of the mornings, you know, I had my oatmeal upstairs in my room that I'm staying, where I, I do my work. And uh, after I finished, you know, it was good. And I wanted more, you know, it was like pleasant. And then the pleasantness was gone because the oatmeal was gone. And uh, I mean, I knew I could go down and get more, but there was also some understanding, one, that it was a little humiliating (laughs) to go get more oatmeal (laughs) as the teacher. And, uh, but, but I'd like to think that beyond that, you know, little bit of embarrassment, there was also a sense like it wouldn't really help, you know, getting more oatmeal it would be a little bit more pleasantness, but somehow 
It really wouldn't. And there was just, just a very poignant Vedana, you know, unpleasant Vedana, unpleasant feeling tone that had that kind of grieving sadness. But luckily, you know, there was enough awareness just to sit there and know that this is just this experience being known. And it was totally okay to renounce needing more oatmeal. I know it's funny, but it's, these are the little, you know, the little insights 10,000 times that really transform understanding. Because a lot of what we're transforming is our, the way we relate to sensuality, to sense experience, conversation, interactions, food. So, you know, the, just these basic categories of human interactions, food, shelter, you know, and all those things that are related, like contributing, belonging. And just to be really curious about how we can be all in and engaged, but not feeding, not expecting sensuality, sense experience to make us happy. You know, the happiness, this unconditioned happiness that the Buddha's teachings and practices point to, it's a happiness of letting go, of the letting go of attachment, the letting go of clinging. And that letting go happens like the dog learned when we realize the 10,000 times, maybe more, and little glimpses here and there, there's nothing here for me. There's nothing here for anyone. It's just this experience being known. And maybe in moments where you had a little continuity, you notice that that beautiful balance, very simple and in a way very quiet, but um, definitely worthy of recognizing that balance of equanimity with experience. Like the more we trust the awareness the more we're okay with things that are coming and going in our experience. Don't need the moment to be different than it is. Don't need the knees to hurt more or less. Don't need the ringing of the bell to come sooner or later. Because we're really, the heart is taking refuge in that... uh, depth and breadth of awareness that simply does its job. Now it's like this. This is being known. This is being known. So I'll leave it here. We have uh, maybe seven, eight minutes just to sit in silence. Feel free to adjust your posture if you need to. And we'll just sort of explore the balance of equanimity in these moments.
last evening of practice and just listen to your own energy, but just not afraid to continue practicing in any way that makes sense for you as long as there's energy. So some of us will be here at 8.45 for an evening sit. Please join in if you'd like. Have a good night, everyone.